This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by the Bonhoeffer Project Leadership Team with Bill Hull, Brandon Cook, and their team. Here's audio content from the Bonhoeffer Project. This is very nice. Here we are with uh, the opportunity to continue our discussion. And the question that we are addressing, and we have been in each of our sessions, is why do most discipleship efforts fail and what we can do about it? So if you're just jumping in here, this is session four. Uh, we, we're, we can't go back and answer all these questions again, but so we will essentially give you a quick summary. Uh, the first answer is because we don't start with the gospel, that we think that the gospel you believe in determines the kind of disciple you make. And part of the reason that discipleship efforts fail is because we're taking a conventional consumeristic gospel and trying to create a Christ-like disciple, and that is impossible because the consumeristic forgiveness-only gospel conventionally is about self and the acquisition of religious goods and services, whereas the Christ-like gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of following Christ and being his disciple and his apprentice and learning from him how to live our lives as though Jesus were living them, is about others. So you just can't get there from that location. So that was the, the first answer. The second we talked about because information, uh, because we think that information or inspiration equals transformation. And that isn't so. Those are important components. But essentially, obedience is the issue. As Dallas Willard used to say very wonderfully, that obedience is where the Holy Spirit meets you. Uh, then we talked about last hour about that the reason that so many struggle in their discipleship effort is because that we disciple people in a closed system. So you eventually run out of people to disciple. People become more knowledgeable. They become more uh, sure of their beliefs. However, we're locked in a system that doesn't reproduce, therefore it's closed, therefore we essentially don't break out and become the church in the world that we are called to become, because the church exists best when it exists for others. So today, now this session, uh, we're going, I'll let uh, Brandon Cook, who's going to speak in a moment, and lead us in this discussion, uh, then, uh, but before we do that, uh, Jane Hull, a very famous woman that I know, uh, yes, extremely good-looking. 
We used to call her a queen. She was the homecoming queen in high school, the homecoming queen in college. And she's just been reigning ever since. <laughs> so Jane is going to begin by telling us a little bit of story about uh, loving others. I need this for security. Um, yeah, I'm married to that guy, and the, the phrase that's burned into my brain is other person-oriented because that's what he has spoken on from day one about reaching others, going out to others. But it's the Bonhoeffer project that has put, put me in the position I'm in now. Closer? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, so my pastor went through, our pastor went through the Bonhoeffer Project and began speaking to us about that. And I became one of his trainees to understand and learn what, what that really means to uh, be a person whose goal is to be for others, not myself. And so I'm just typing away in my little house and doing things for Bill and people. And I meet, we've been there now 18 years. and. The, there's a neighbor that lives on the corner that I've been praying for for most of those years. She's a curmudgeon, a loner. She's never married. She stays in her house. She's about my age. And she's an artist, and I am a wannabe. And so we have traded fonts and gotten to know each other. I think she still has my font book that's about that thick of all the fonts on my computer. So anyway... Long story short, when he asked, when our, my pastor asked us to form our own triad, we were to go get two other people and ask them to be in a group with us. I went to my two neighbors that I felt knew enough to, uh, that possibly knew Christ. One said yes, one said no, and then the one who said yes said no. And I'm stuck. So Robin kept going through my brain. I, I, I probably ought to go talk to Robin, even though I'm convinced she is not a believer. I just felt like i got to go there. So I got my friends to pray. And one day I walked out my door and down the front steps and into her home, knock, knock. And she was just sitting there with all these art materials around her and books on the floor and watercolor kit in front of her and a mess. And I said, Robin, what, 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 what are you doing here? Are you, are you really working? What, what is this? Because she's retired now. She said, well, I just want to do something for myself. I want to sketch. I want to learn to watercolor. I want to develop. And I said the words, Danny Gregory. And because that was who was teaching me to sketchbook. It's an online course. She jumped up and said, I have his books. Would you sketch with me? I didn't even have to ask her. She wanted to meet with me weekly to sketch. And I'm telling you, now we've been together about 12 weeks, sketched nine to ten times. And every time we talk about what Bill's doing, we talk about bits of my life where God has worked, I have had every time an opportunity to share God in some manner with her. She is so curious. It is the, and she's blossoming. She talks to people that, that she would hide from because I'm kind of talkative. So I am learning that she has this sensitive, precious core, and I'm finding it. And I have started, I wake up in the night and I say, God, I want Robin, I want you to give her to me. 
She's mine. Please let me have her. And I want to be that door that shows her God. She wants to go there. So I am pre-discipleship. But it is discipleship. And she is my people of peace. You talked about that today. And that's exactly what Robin is. We have a heart that beats together for art. And now her heart is beginning to beat for God. I, she is. So now we're even taking an exercise class together. So we're meeting twice a week. And this is phenomenal. Praise God. All right. And uh, thank you. You're, you're wonderful. I should get to know you better. Yes. Um, be married forever. Uh, Brandon Cook is the co-founder of the Bonhoeffer Project and literally a man half my age. So that's exciting because there's a future. And no, it's not literally. Okay, I'm sorry. I should have said almost. But Brandon is a pastor of Long Beach Christian Fellowship in Long Beach, California, uh, where we happen to live as well. And so he is going to take us into this fourth session. Great. Thanks, Bill. I loved what you just shared, Jane, uh, the phrase you used. The, I think you said the finding her precious core, finding the core. And that's very in line with what we're going to talk about this morning. So good morning, everybody. You have to bear with me. I'm learning. I feel like I should be watching a football game, not talking to a group. So just bear with me as I try to, I might start jumping up. Um, so why do so many discipleship efforts fail? And what can we do about it? Why do so many discipleship efforts fail? And what can we do about it? Or what, what would Jesus have us do about it? Hopefully that's a question that we will address. One of the problems, I think, in how people have been trained to think about discipleship is that it's just for me. It's just for us. So people have been trained to ask the question, how am I doing? Uh, am I getting closer to Jesus? Have I read my Bible? If so, I feel good. If not, I feel bad. People have been trained to, uh, to even celebrate what Jesus is doing uh, in them, which is great. But there's another question that we need to ask. How is what Jesus is doing in you going to change the way that you love others? How is what Jesus is doing in your life going to change the way that you love those that Jesus has given you to love? See, we can shape people by the questions that we ask. The questions that we ask actually reveal what we value. And so if we're going to make disciples, then yeah, we need to absolutely celebrate what Jesus is doing within them. But we also need to train them into new questions. How is Jesus going to use what he's doing within you to change the way that you love others? Because that's really the whole point. And that's the point of this forum is that discipleship in Jesus is discipleship for others. Jesus did not make this distinction between discipleship and mission. You know, you, you go to a conference and you can take the discipleship track or the missional track. Did Jesus make that distinction? No. He just said, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, the discipleship and the mission, it's really the same thing. Follow me, I'm going to teach you to love others as the Father loves them. I'm going to teach you to make present the Father's heart for others uh, as you watch me do it. And so, my assertion is that as disciple-making leaders, you and I have to teach people posture. Posture 
in how to be with others? How do we teach people to have a posture with others that actually makes present the love of God and makes present the kingdom of God for others as Jesus did? So let me tell you a story. When I was, oh, I don't know, when I was 17, it was a very good year. When I was probably 16 or 17, I went to a course with one of my friends. It was an evangelism course. And we were with some older men, and we would go to the mall, and uh, we would walk up to people at the mall, and the, we, were, we were hoping to share the gospel, and we would pretend that we were giving a survey, uh, which was not true. So we're starting off this relationship with a lie, which was a little strange, but we were looking for an opportunity uh, to share the gospel. And I, I don't think that I was very good at this. Uh, Oftentimes, I would say, can I, excuse me, sir, we're, we're doing a survey. Uh, can I ask you a few questions? No, thank you. And, you know, slam the door, as it were. I don't, I don't, I don't think that I ever uh, led anybody to a knowledge of Jesus through that. But um, that was what we did. You know, on a, every Wednesday night, we would go and do this. Now, as I looked back on this years later, I realized, man, I really learned to posture through that of being with people in a way that I don't think was resourceful or helpful. So let me be clear what I want to say because I may be stepping on some toes right now. I'm not knocking evangelism explosion. I'm sure, I know Jesus has used that in amazing ways to do great things. And goodness gracious, the boldness to share our faith with others, I want more of that. So I'm not knocking that. What I am saying is that any technique can become corrupted. And it can create in us a posture of being with people in a way that actually dehumanizes them. That makes them a commodity rather than a person. Because what I found is I'd be in conversations with people and I was just looking for an opportunity to share the gospel and and convert them. And honestly, it was more about me. It was more about, am I succeeding? How did I do? You know, why was I bold? You know, I I like to joke about the fact that growing up uh, where I grew up, as a Christian, it was like, hey, if, you, if it's awkward, you're probably doing it right. And if, it's, if you're miserable, you're definitely doing it right. Right? Like, if evangelism feels awkward, then you must be really putting it out there. And so I learned this posture with people that was really more about me selling them something, trying to convince them to come around to my point of view. I did not have a, a posture that I think made present the kingdom of God for them. And... and Sharing boldly faith, that's a great thing. But man, if you're doing that from a posture that's not humanizing, that's not honoring another person, then that is uh, a big problem. And so the posture that I want to talk to you about this morning is the posture of hospitality. And how, as disciple-making leaders, you and I can actually pastor people, lead people into learning a posture of hospitality that makes present the kingdom of God for others. Because discipleship in Jesus is discipleship for others. We need to be training people how to be with others in a way that makes present the kingdom of God. Because you and I, we get to be the hands and feet and compassion of Jesus in a lonely, hurting world. People are lonely. People are dying. You look at the stats, we're more and more connected. You know, you've got 3,000 Facebook friends and yet you feel more disconnected than you ever have. Isn't that the way that it's working? We're curating these perfect images of our life through Instagram and Facebook and really people are hurting. And they're lonely. And Jesus is wanting to meet that need and that brokenness with His love. But He can only do that through disciples who are focused on loving others as He does. 
So how do we teach a posture of hospitality by which people experience the kingdom of God? So I want to read this morning from Luke 24, the Emmaus Road encounter. You may remember this. I'm going to read from Luke 24:13. It's a bit of a long passage, but I think it's going to be worth it from what we're going to see, the posture of Jesus. What I want to ask you to notice as we read this passage is the posture of Jesus towards those that he encounters. Luke 24, 13. This is the day, uh, the days following the resurrection. And many of Jesus' followers don't realize that he's actually been resurrected, so it makes for quite a scene. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And they talked and discussed these things. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Hey guys, what's up? What are you talking about? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, he must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. Jesus is playing dumb. Notice that. Jesus is playing dumb so that he can engage them in conversation. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and our religious leaders handed him over to be crucified, condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah, the anointed one from God, who had come to rescue Israel. And this all happened just three days ago. Then some women from our group uh, of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report, and they, they said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, You foolish people! You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before entering into his glory? And then Jesus took them through uh, the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from scripture all the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey, and Jesus acted as if he was going to go on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. And so he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it. He broke the bread and he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and as he explained the scriptures to us? Did not our hearts burn within us? Woof. That's some good stuff. So, you read Luke. Jesus loves to have meals. And he loves to send out his disciples to have meals. That's a posture of hospitality. You know, far from discipleship or evangelism being awkward or miserable, Jesus paints this picture that you should be having fun. And he says, hey, when, those, when people invite you in, Stay there, bless them, and eat and drink what's given to you. Jesus paints this picture that discipleship and evangelism 
uh, is more like a party and less like a funeral. It's more like a celebration. So to break this passage down very, very simply, this is what we see. Jesus encounters these men, and then what does he do? Jesus asks questions. He asks questions. He says, hey, guys, why so down? What's going on? What are you guys talking about? And then the next thing he does is Jesus tells the story of God. He says to them, let me explain to you what the Scripture actually says. And he takes them through Moses. Can you imagine getting this Bible study at the hands of Jesus? And then Jesus shares a meal. And these three things, I think, make up the posture of hospitality that we as followers of Jesus are invited into. Jesus asks questions. He honors the men by asking their story. What's going on? He tells the story of God. And he shares a meal with them. And then what happens? These men have a supernatural encounter. The men have a supernatural encounter. So there's the progression. Jesus asks questions. Jesus tells the story of God. Jesus shares a meal and something supernatural happens. They recognize him. They recognize God. Now, as Jesus' disciples, we can do these first three three things. The last thing, we, we have no control over. We just leave that to God, right? These men have an experience of God. They recognize God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What we do have control over is our posture with others. And following in the way of Jesus, we are invited to have this same posture of hospitality. Because hospitality is about more than just sharing a meal. Notice it's about the questions that we ask. It's about how we're with people that Jesus gives us to love. And my favorite part of the story, I love this. Right when Jesus leaves, the first thing they say is, did not our hearts burn within us? They don't say, wow, that was so fascinating how he linked Moses to Isaiah. I had never thought of that. The first thing they say is, Did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us? In other words, there was something in the way that Jesus was with others that caused hearts to burn. There was something in his posture well before he told the story of God that communicated the presence of God. And oftentimes in the church, I think we have taught techniques, but we've not taught posture. Maybe we've even taught how to share your faith, but we haven't necessarily taught how to honor the person that is in front of you as Jesus did. So, there was something in Jesus that caused people to experience God. How did, how did, how did Jesus do it? Well, again, he asked questions. And I would assert that asking questions of those that Jesus gives us to love is very simply a way to honor them. I have a neighbor, uh, he's a person of peace, he's invited me into his life, don't totally understand why, I'm guessing on some level he is, is experiencing the spirit of Jesus within me, some, it's crazy how that works, 
And I started to notice that we were uh, we were kind of getting a habit. We were passing each other, and, and uh, but we weren't necessarily talking at deep level. And I realized, man, I know nothing about where he comes from. I know nothing about what it was like growing up. And so one day, as we were talking, I said, hey, you know, I know that you're from wherever you're from. I don't remember now. Uh, I know you're from where we're from. Tell me what it was like growing up there. And you should. he just absolutely came to life. And started telling me these stories, and I realized... If I hadn't asked that question and honored him and humanized him, humanized his experience, as Jesus does, then he wouldn't have had a chance to share of his life. And there was a bond that was created in the sharing of that. That's what I see Jesus doing in this, in this passage. Is, is he, know, he actually knows what's going on, right? He knows, what, he, he knows what's going on behind the scenes, but I think we see the value, the value that Jesus holds is, I'm going to draw out these men's stories, so that we can commune in their story. So then he breaks bread with them, right? And in Jewish culture, sitting sitting down and having a meal was a way that you honored someone, right? That's why people flipped out when Jesus had a meal with Zacchaeus, because Jesus, how can you honor Zacchaeus? That's really what they're asking. So we see Jesus time and time again honoring those that come across his path, humanizing them. By asking questions and sharing a meal. And I, I think what the point of the story, in a large sense, is the container matters. The container in which we share the gospel, the posture from which we share the gospel matters. So you can imagine my wife, Becca. I love her. I cherish her. She's uh, an amazing woman. And I like to surprise her every now and then with, with gifts or flowers or chocolates or whatever. Now imagine... If I went to the, the chocolate store and I bought her these amazing chocolate bonbons, you know, Swiss bonbons. I don't know if the Swiss actually have good chocolate, but whoever has good chocolate, imagine I get these delicious bonbons, right? They're beautiful. They're delicious. I take them home. And then I put them in a Genki Tupperware container, right? And I walk in and she's sitting on the couch and I walk in with these bonbons and they're in Tupperware and I say, hi, honey. Here you go. And I throw the Tupperware at the couch and the bonbons go everywhere. That would be crazy, right? Because the container matters. How I present the chocolate uh, is almost as important as the chocolate itself. But I think oftentimes in the church, and we have, we have the hope. We have the, we have the chocolate. We have the message of everlasting life. But the container matters. And when you read the story of Emmaus, you know, Jesus tells the story, but notice the container. Jesus asks questions to honor the person in front of him, and he shares a meal with them. He doesn't just tell the story of God and, and take off. He actually sits and honors and humanizes and communes with the people who are in front of him. So very simply, as we think about being disciple-making leaders, how are we training the people that we get to care for into having a posture that Jesus has. A posture of hospitality. Getting very practical, I would just bring it down to these, these two things. Is that not only do we need to t- teach people to tell the story of God, but we need to teach people as disciples to ask questions of their neighbors, of their people of peace, in order to draw out and honor their story. Because... Honestly, that's a very practical skill that people oftentimes have a lot of anxiety about. But I was, you know, even this weekend, someone walked up to me, and, and I didn't know them well, and they said, just so tell me a little bit about self, yourself. What do you like to do? And I felt so honored 
I felt so, you know, uh, seen. And I, I think that's what Jesus does for people. In a world where people are getting missed and not seen, Jesus says, I, I see you. Tell me about yourself. So what does it look like? Imagine if we were creating disciples who were adopting that posture, that with their neighbors they were learning to say, hey, tell me, tell me more about yourself. And in fact, let, let's have a meal. I'd love to hear more about your life. And I think what they might discover is that that's really when discipleship and evangelism becomes an absolute blast. It becomes a party. It becomes a get-to, not a have-to. And see, I think people have often, I think for many people, evangelism has been ruined because it's been made into a have-to. It's more about us doing it the correct way and less about the person. But what if we discovered the posture of the heart of God towards that person? Man, this, this becomes what we see in Luke. It becomes a feast. It becomes a celebration. So um, we, can, we can teach the people that we disciple just that very simple thing of, of learning to say, hey, tell me a little bit about your story. You know, you said you were from, you know, Inez. Tell me a little bit about Inez. What was it like growing up there? Tell me about what it was like in your family. I would love to know more of your story. And the second thing is challenging people to eat a meal together. So here's a, here's a simple idea for the people that we disciple, disciple. A simple challenge we might give them is one in one. So once a month, share a meal with your spiritual family. Because that's important. We, you know, the, the community of prayerful love, as Dallas Willard called it, so important that we share a meal together. And share a meal with those who are not in your spiritual family, your neighbors or your people of peace, one in one. At least once a month, or maybe some people do once a week, but there needs to be a balance in our hospitality. Because oftentimes as the church, we're very good about fellowship, potlucks, we're all going to get together, and woohoo, it's kind of comfortable because we all think the same way, but... Jesus challenges his disciples to go to those who aren't in their tribe, who aren't in their spiritual family. So what would it look like with those we disciple to, to give them the one-in-one -one challenge or some sort of challenge? To say, hey, invite you, do what Jesus does. When you're invited in, go. And like Jesus did with Zacchaeus, invite those in. Honor them, humanize them by having a meal with them. Because here's the deal. You and I and those we disciple, we get to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to those who are lonely. And the Father cares for them deeply. And if we'll start asking that question, Jesus, how can I partner with you in loving others? And not only ask the question, Jesus, how am I doing? Then we're going to start experiencing the salvation of God in all sorts of crazy ways. We've got to make disciples who don't just ask the question, how am I doing? But they ask the question, how's it going loving others? That's not natural for any human being, but by the grace and the spirit of Jesus, we can develop that habit that helps us live into the spirit of Jesus. So, what would it look like? Imagine what it would look like to see disciples created who have this posture of hospitality as we learn to live and love like Jesus together. I think quite simply, we will see what Jesus saw in this story, the supernatural happening. People supernaturally recognizing who God is. So, may we be a people who live into this hospitality of Jesus, and that's what we're going to discuss now as uh, a panel. So, maybe we could just start with some reflections, uh, starting with, with you, Jim. Does that work, or do you want to moder moderate this? Sure. Um, I think one of the beauties of the Bonhoeffer Project is that it's context-specific, and 
One of the things we talk about in the cohorts is as we develop a, a discipleship flow process for different churches, it's not me replicating what we're doing at my church and your church. We're looking at your specific context and figuring out what's going to work where you are. I think discipleship in and of itself is kind of the same thing. We forget that it's context-specific. And I love the idea, Brandon, of what you said about the difference between a per, uh, the person that you're discipling, the difference between being a commodity and a person. And this idea of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus, I think we, at least I do, I always put that on myself as a disciple, but forget to say, well, that's part of the discipling process as well. As a discipler, I need to deny myself. So I had this uh, this guy who came to our church. He's British, and he's from Newcastle, so he's almost Scottish. And so it's very, very thick brogue. And I, I, it's great when he calls, but I don't understand a word he says, right? And so I'm like, yeah, let's get together, dude, coffee. Okay, good. Then I can actually understand what he's saying to me. Well, he's, he's a soccer coach, was a soccer player. Uh, his family works for Newcastle United. So, I mean, deep, deep into that world. And he came to Christ about seven years ago when he married a girl who goes to our church. And the first thing, they were going to a different church at, at the time. And the first thing that some of the pastors in that church did was throw a bunch of books his way. Now, you have to understand, his context is no religion at all. Okay, not even Christianity, not just Christianity, but no religion at all. And so he's coming in, and these guys are throwing navigator stuff at him, and they're throwing all... And he's like, I don't read, and I don't understand any of the words in the books that you're throwing at me. And so it was a completely different context for this guy. And so he, he pushed back and walked away from that. He said, I don't, I don't want... I'll go to church with you, but I'm not going to do any of this other stuff, right? So they come to our church, and we meet one another, and, and we start to form a friendship. And he, he says, do you want to get coffee? And I said, yeah, of course. And... We met down at Starbucks one day, and he said, I'd love to start meeting with you and kind of talking about some of the things you're preaching about. And I said, okay. For two years, we didn't talk about Jesus. We talked about soccer. Now, soccer is just organized running in shorts that are too short. That's all it is to me. Okay, I grew up in Texas. It's football is number one, baseball, basketball. That's kind of how that rolls. Soccer is kind of what foreigners do, right? And so I get in this situation. He starts talking in that brogue about soccer and about all these teams and tries to explain how you can actually drop out of the standings. How do you drop out of standings? But that's what happens in the Premier League in England where if you're not good enough, they actually put you in a different league. I, I, was just, I, I did a lot of smiling and nodding for about two years. And we talk about his wife and we, they, had, uh, they've had, they have two boys now. We talk about parenting. We talked about a little bit about that stuff. And then about two years in, we're sitting in a Starbucks. And he asked me a question. He said, you know, what you said last Sunday. And there was a catalytic moment right there. Where he brought up a spiritual topic. Because I had invested in his life for a long time now. And he said, I have some questions about that. And we started then. I had the freedom, honestly, then to start to speak in a language that he had been resistant to for years. Now, after meeting with him for about three and a half years, he asked if he can join my D group, which is six guys. And last week, it was great. He showed up and he was talking about he had just he had just got a promotion at, church, at his work. And, and he said, you know what I'm going to try to do as a supervisor now? I'm just going to try to implement what Jesus is teaching me into the lives of the people that are around me because most of these people don't know Christ. And I, I just had this moment of reflection of reverie, if you will, um, back to two and a half, three years ago when he didn't want to have a spiritual conversation and now he wants to create them in his workplace. 
And I think this idea of discipleship in Jesus is discipleship for others. I wanted, when he came to me, I said, yeah, if you could order Barth's, Barth's dogmatics, and we'll start walking through that, or Erickson's systematic theology, man, that would fire me up, man. We can start going through doctrine. That'd just be a great thing. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And he's like, yeah, Newcastle lost again. You know, that was, that was his world. And I had, God taught me in that to deny myself. To deny my desire to get into deep spiritual stuff immediately and maybe float on the surface a while until he's ready to go under the water. And, and that, was, that was something that really impacted me and really reminded me to be context specific. Um, so I, I basically had three thoughts that just kept going the more you were talking first. And, and I mean, it's so simple, but a posture of hospitality is, is rooted in love. Like, it, if we don't love people, we can't fake this. And so that was the first thing. The second thing that I thought is really neat is, you know, there's been so much made in the last year about how polarized our, our culture has become. You, you know, black versus white, Republican versus Democrat, really... I think we should acknowledge Christian versus non-Christian, and that's our fault. And and so this idea of of being hospitable and, and crossing cultural boundaries and loving people well where they are is is such a unique opportunity right now because it is increasingly countercultural. You know, even in the South, I, I don't think we're as hospitable as we'd like to think that we are, and we're certainly not hospitable. Um, across societal lines and and the gospel compels us uh, to love people indiscriminately and and therefore across these lines and I I think we have an opportunity uh, to to stand out more than we ever have just by loving people the way Jesus loves and so I think that's fun The, the last thing and this is totally tangential and it's just in relationship to to our church, we're a, a disciple-making church in Houston, and, and we're always pushing people to disciple. and And I totally and thoroughly believe that our, our first responsibility is to disciple the people in our families. I hope I'm a better dad than I am a pastor or preacher. I really, actually, think I am a better dad than I am a pastor or preacher, which doesn't really mean I'm a good dad. Anyway. Um, but, but a lot of times what you'll hear is, well, I'm really just focused on discipling my kids. And I'm for that. But a lot of times people will use that kind of as an excuse not to invest in other people, certainly not to be inconvenienced with non-Christians. And so they won't invite people into their homes because they're saying, well, we're kind of focused on the family. Again, good thing. But what this tells me is, the best way to disciple our children is to invite people who don't look just like us into our home and to model loving them where they are. Because if all we're doing is loving our kids, the danger is going to be that our kids are going to think they're the center of the universe. But if we invite other people in and our kids watch us love them as we're loving our kids, then they're understanding what it looks like to be loving and hospitable. And I think that's really, really important in today's Christianity. By the way, we uh, uh, this is West Brazelton. 
Brazelton. I'm, uh, I'm going to get it right. I got the first name right. You did. Yeah. And uh, he's pastor of uh, Grace Bible Church in Houston. And so because maybe you haven't been in the series of this seminar that we've been in, so you don't know who these guys are. Uh, this is uh, Jim Thomas, pastor of First Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. And uh, so, uh, Kylie, why don't you introduce yourself to us and reflect on what, was, what we've been talking about. Uh, you can just grab that mic. We got, we got a lot of microphones up here. I'm Kylie DePena. My husband, Derek, over there, um, is he and I lead a church in North County, San Diego, called New Community Church of Vista. Um, We've been there just a little over a year, so I'm new to this senior pastor-wife role, but we've been in ministry together for about 14 years uh, since our first date. So um, just a couple of things that hit me as you were talking and just throughout this series. Uh, One of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently, we we moved, like I said, just new church about a year ago. We didn't move down, find a home and all that until about six months ago. Um, Is the the people of peace. Um, I think one thing that hit me yesterday while we were talking was the idea of, you know, not really you do go out and look for those people, but also just the awareness of who's around you. And it just kind of hit me. I was talking last night with my husband just how um, there's one specific neighbor that just right off the bat, you know, I'm like, oh, he they, they go to some kind of church. So I kind of dismissed trying to reach out to them at all. Um, you know, and then I found out the one guy on one side is an atheist. And so I'm thinking, okay, God, there's a reason we're here, you know. But it was really the neighbor who already goes to church um, in some form. I believe they go to a Catholic church in the neighborhood. But that I just felt like, gosh, this family, I mean, we're carpooling with our kids. And he's come over and helped Derek with a few things around the house. His name is actually Derek, too. So it was just kind of a funny um, coincidence. They've got kids a couple years older than ours. But just really realizing I just need to be aware of those people um, in my everyday life because they're right in front of our house, literally. Um, And for whatever reason, God has just started to build that relationship um, and give us just a bond and a, a, hey, can I knock on your door for something? You know, they've invited us for dinner a couple of times. It just hasn't worked out yet. But, you know, just noticing that, okay, God, we're going to make that happen next time there's that invitation. Um, Just being aware of that. And the second thing that I that kind of has just been soaking on me uh, as we talk about God's love and how we go around and disciple, um, I realize, you know, with discipleship, sometimes you have to really pick a handful of people to pour into. It's not like I can disciple, like we've talked about, from the stage to 200 people, and I don't usually have a microphone, so that's not something I'll probably ever do. Um, but just realizing that... I don't reserve the right to determine which of you or which person across the street is worthy of the love of God. That is not my right. Um, my, my responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to give it to anyone that is, has an ear open, that has a heart in that direction. And to, as we talked about in this story, um, just that, that burning in their heart that they were able to reflect and go, did you not feel that burning? You know, in your heart as we walked with him, like, that's what it was, you know. Um, that it's not my responsibility to give that burning, but that that is my desire in a conversation for somebody to walk away from it and go, what was different? What's that burning in my heart? What's that, what's that, what's being stirred up in me, you know, so. Jane, do you have anything you'd like to add based, you know, what's your reflection? I was all over that I was all over the hospitality idea. Um, 
because uh, in my training we haven't gotten into that yet. This is this is great, and I I'm sitting here thinking, oh wow, I've been feeling guilty about a new neighbor, two new neighbors that God has placed beside us that we haven't invited into our home yet. It's coming. So um, this. Do I have to be there. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pick a non-football night. Okay. Yes. Oh, great. No, this opens my heart to do what I already wanted to do, what I was already feeling guilty about not doing. No, no, it's a confirmation to go ahead and go with my heart and do this. Um, Wow. And also, what was said yesterday, I don't know who said it. They said, I think it might have even been Bill. When you sit and you listen to your pastor or like someone here speaking, are you saying, hmm, let's see, that resonates. No, it doesn't. Eh, you know, you should be asking yourself, how is God going to use what they are saying to, to open me to someone, to give away? What, is va- what here can I give away? It's not about me, and I am, it's really hard for me to give up me. I'm really into me. So uh, that has that has been that has resonated with me this morning about well I've said enough. The, um, Starting to blather. Actually, um, I was thinking about something practical with respect because what you said was very eloquent and the idea of not treating people like a commodity. And I know Eugene Peterson is really excellent on all this, reading his work about. If pastoral work and leadership isn't personal, it's personal. It's local. It's non-exploitive. And I remember when I was a young pastor in particular, I remember telling people, now we're going to do some outreach here. We're going to have a Valentine's banquet, and the only way you can come to the Valentine's banquet is if you bring an unbeliever. And so that was the rule. And I also had another rule that uh, they have to be a candidate for our church. We don't want anybody coming to this who's a non-Christian who lives way far away who can't come to our church because, you know, after all, we're trying to build up our church. And that's how messed up I was. You were that crass? Yes. No, I was just driven. It was called... Uh, I, I love what Robbie Gallaty said the other day about when he was first year in seminary. His nickname was, was Ignorance on Fire. <laughs> That was me. But uh, I'd like to hear practically, how do you teach this, something this esoteric and uh, commendable and lovely and idealistic? How do you teach that practically to people in a congregation? Because it's foolish to believe that life is just totally organic. Uh, if you're a leader and you lead more than like five people, you know you have to organize it. You've got to do something. There's got to be a plan of some kind. Or you're just not going to get it done. And so how is it that you step out as a leader and make something like this work? And uh, I want to start uh, with uh, Jim. Because you guys are working pastors. This is where you guys live. I want to hear more about that. And then Brandon, I think, too. Yeah, I think uh, obviously there are a lot of different answers to that, I think. But one of those for me is 
the primacy of preaching and teaching and for your team to be on the same page. And I think, you know, the counsel of God's word leads us to missional work. It leads us to disciple for Jesus. We're not making disciples for ourselves. One of the only religions in the world that makes disciples for somebody else, right? We make disciples for Jesus. And so as we do that, the whole counsel of God's word leads to that end. It leads to following Christ, right? From Genesis to Revelation, as Brandon said yesterday. And so in, in teaching and in preaching and, and, and being a student pastor for 15 years, an executive pastor for nine years, and now as a senior pastor, I may have some different eyes because I come at it as a staff member. And I always remember, uh, there are many times as a staff member, I would hit a lid with my senior pastor. And that's as far as we could go in leading people toward these type of ideas, right? Well, now in this position, one of the things I've asked my staff to do is to use the same language. We talked about culture change and language change. To use the same language across the ministries within the life of our church. Don't create little pods that are doing different things, but let's be on the same path together. Let's be teaching the same thing. What you hear me teach on stage will not be new to you because we're talking about it in staff meeting. We're talking about it as we walk along the road, if you want to use the analogy of what Brandon was just teaching. And some of the victory in that is I think we start to see the culture change toward this idea of being others-focused in discipleship when we start to hear the language change in our people. And when I start to hear Kevin, the guy I was talking about, starting to take the principles that he's learned because it's not only being taught by me, it's taught by Aaron, our discipleship pastor, and other Sunday school teachers, other things like that. And all of this communication is happening in one direction. So, uh, again, it's the teaching. You know, we talked about information yesterday not being the end, but it is part of the process. And I think when we teach and we direct, and everything I preach on leads back to this idea of making disciples. Whatever context we're in, whether we're pre- I'm teaching on marriage, whether I'm teaching on Christmas, whether I'm teaching you know, Easter, whatever that happens to be, that becomes a driving force for what people experience, especially on a Sunday or for us on a Wednesday, that helps to lead them toward that desired end of making this practical. And then we start modeling it throughout our ministries in very practical ways by setting up what we call the discipleship flow process and systems within that for people to engage in the truth they're being taught. Very good. You know, I... I'd agree with everything that he said in terms of preaching and certainly beyond just the preaching, it's celebrating stories that that have modeled that from regular people in the congregation. That's a huge part of it, too. The only thing I would maybe add to what Jim said is we have about 250 small group leaders, and we can explicitly train them to model this. And it's good for me to model it and our staff and our elders to model it. But if, if you have people leading our small groups, our discipleship groups, who, in addition to loving the people in their groups well, are modeling for their groups how to love people, especially outside of the church well, I think that's a really uh, impactful opportunity uh, that we have. And so that would probably be the only other thing I would add. And Brandon, you uh, you have some hands-on stuff you're doing along these lines. I want to hear from you. As a, as a pastor. We do, but actually what came to mind when you, for me when you asked that question, I'll piggyback on what both Jim and Wes said, is I think we're really having a conversation about culture. How do you create a discipleship culture? Because if you don't have a discipleship culture and you're trying to get people to do something, uh, number one, it's going to be like dragging a horse to water. Number two, it's probably not going to work. If you have a discipleship culture, then those things just start happening naturally. So really the question is, 
how do we get a discipleship culture where these things happen nor- uh, uh, naturally? And, and I would just pick it back on what you both said. S- storytelling is the thing that comes up for me. Stories have always been important, but now stories have become the language and the currency of our culture. There is a reason why Mac computers are so popular, and it's not just because it's a better computer, although I think it is, uh, <laughs> but it's the story that they tell behind it through the aesthetics. So part of what we're up against uh, as disciple-making leaders, or what I'm up against as a pastor, is that people will listen to me because I'm a pastor. They will also not listen to me because I'm a pastor, right? They'll listen to me because I'm a pastor, but anything I say, they're thinking, well, he has to say that he's the pastor. He's paid to say that. Now, you get somebody up there, you know, you get uh, Sally Lou or, uh, you know, Jimmy, John, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Bob, I'm trying to think of some, I'm from Alabama, so I'm trying to think of some good southern names. We call my son Bubba. That's neither here nor there. Um, you get the average person up in your community, and they start telling a story about how um, the grace of Jesus within them was ministered to someone else. You get, you get them telling a story about how they crossed the street for their neighbor or how they invited a neighbor in. And not only, I think this is key, not only stories of success, but also stories of failure. Of people getting out of the boat and then sinking, but at least they got out of the boat. Because then what happens, people say, wait a minute, I can do this. Jimmy Bob's doing this, Sally Lou's doing this. I know them, they're just regular people. So I think for where we're headed as disciple-making leaders and creating disciple-making culture, harvesting and telling and spotlighting stories, that reveals what we value and that's what creates culture. What we celebrate ends up creating culture. So, uh, you know, that's something we're doing in our congregation right now is we started, we're calling it a storytelling initiative, but we're just getting people up there telling stories of success, of failure, and not just stories of, hey, this person has served in children's ministry for 50 years. Yes, we're going to honor that story, but we're going to make sure we have stories of people crossing the road for their neighbor, of people uh, uh, practicing hospitality. And, And I think one of the things we need to remember is depending on which context you're in, it depends on the amount of time that culture change takes. And, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a church that's 187 years old. I mean, we still have stuff in our minutes about if Sherman marches through, okay? Um, that, that, outside of Atlanta, okay? So, uh, we, you know, I walk in four and a half years ago to a 187-year-old church and want to bring culture change, Okay? Welcome to our culture is what they're saying, you know. And so we had to be very intentional in everything we were doing to help create that change in the life of the church. And I can't remember who said it in our faculty retreat out in California, Bill, but someone used the phrase, sometimes when you get stuck, you just have to plow around the stumps, you know. Oh, yeah, that was uh, Dallas Willard who said um, about somebody asked him, well, how do you do disciple making in a church? If the pastor, the lead pastor, doesn't want to do it, right? And he said, "Well, it's hard to plow around the pulpit, but it must be done sometimes." Right, and that and that's the idea of thinking. Sometimes you'll get resistance. Well, all the time you'll get resistance <laughs> from somebody in your in your context of not wanting to see that culture changed, right? And the, the idea has been plowing around those stumps, and not that the stump represents someone who's not worth. It, it doesn't deal with their worth before God. It just deals with someone who usually sucks time and doesn't allow you to move forward. And so to go around them and continue to walk forward and persevere, creating that new culture with, what did you call them yesterday, the pioneers? The one that will go out into the wilderness with you and start to create language and start to create. But also, and I had, I had a stump that came up to me about two weeks ago. We call, we call them the usual suspects. I don't know if you guys have any of those in your churches. 
But uh, every time he says, Pastor, I need to talk to you, my heart just goes, oh, this is going to go south quick, you know. And he said, I, in fact, I need to talk to you in the other room. And I went, uh-oh, run away, run away. Security. Um, I said, okay. And I walked around this partition with him, went into the other room. And he said, listen, I, I just want, sometimes I can be brash and I need to apologize to you. And he said, I fully support your ministry. And I've been praying for this guy in many different ways um, for a while now. And it, it was at a funeral of all places. I'd just done a funeral. And he pulls me at the reception aside and he tells me this. And I was able to look at him and validate him and his worth both to God, to me, and in the congregation without validating his past attitude. And so as we plowed around him and kept going, he kind of went, I'm getting left behind. And he started listening. And so God started to do something there. So that, those, are, those are some of the things that I think come out of that is we need to understand our culture to persevere. I had a guy come to me one time and he handed me a, a model of an aircraft carrier. And it had the name of the church written on the side. And he simply looked. I didn't even know the guy in the church. He looked at me and he said, it'll turn, but it'll take some time. Good word. Um, yes. Um, I'm thinking of that dirty A word called accountability. Um, how, how do you work with that? To be to, to call your people to be accountable, um, because that's the only reason I went out the door and off the front porch was my pastor said, "You've got a month, and we're going to meet back, and you're going to give me uh, tell me about who you talk to." And I did it. Uh, so that you know, uh, kind of uh, you have to give accountability has gone through several uh, phases in my ministry life. Back when it was in the early days, we just said accountability. Everybody says, yeah. And then, especially coming out of an athletic background, that worked for me. But then uh, after a while, people said, you know, we don't want to be accountable. Uh, accountability doesn't work because people could just lie. But uh, then, then it was just called we give people support or we give people encouragement. Or, and, and so you can call, and, and I believe that the, the most important question anybody could ask of another individual in this area is, can I trust me with you? And if I can trust me with you, then I'm willing to submit to you and I'm going to allow you to speak into my life. And so if you have that kind of relationship with people, integrous relationships, then that is all the accountability you need. But you can't make disciples without accountability. It's impossible. Don't even try it. Don't waste your time. You can't... There has to be accountability through relationships because... You do know that, just like Jane mentioned, if I have 30 days to do something, I might wait till day 29, but on day 30, hopefully it'll be done. And that is a much high, higher probability that something will get done, that I will do that task, that I will become that person through accountability. And so I used to say that you can't make disciples without accountability. You can't have accountability without structure of some sort when you're talking about a congregation. Now, we just have a couple of minutes to uh, take a question or two from 
uh, our congregation here. So uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I'm going to ask uh, Daryl or whoever is close by. Here's a mic, and just take the mic to the person. So raise your hand. Yeah, uh, the gentleman in the Auburn hat and the, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I when you started talking about um, the family and the kids, I just kind of felt like if you could just press pause, rewind, and just loop that for about 20 minutes. Um, just because I think literally our families are an idol. Um, just the whole the whole narrative behind the nuclear family. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could maybe unpack a little bit about how, like I realize there's the platform to kind of say that, just like what you just did, but is there anything, I guess, that you're, that you're experimenting with or that you found helpful to kind of help families get out of that, you know, closed system, that the family itself is a closed system? Sure. Um, first of all, I don't know that... I have too much to unpack here. I'm, I'm pretty simple, but one of the things we have noticed in the last 10 or so years is that uh, that focus really is so much on the nuclear family that, that, that kids start to grow up thinking they really are the center of the universe. And, and, and the kingdom... Uh, that, that can be pursued and and the family finding joy in that pursuit is oftentimes put on pause so that um, so that that parents can can really live vicariously through their kids honestly and and you see that I mean little league baseball which I, I coached and I played and I loved it as an opportunity to invest in my son. I mean, it cherished memories. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, at all. I, I, I want this to be perceived and lived in a balanced way. But there are there are things that are more important to, uh, or there are things that should be more important to the family than children's sports. And, and if we are discipling our kids, children's sports should be another means to the end of, of loving people well. And, and that should be true of the parents' involvement. That should also be what we're teaching our kids. You know, ultimately, sports don't exist for your exaltation. They exist as a vehicle through which you can love people well. Uh, there's a great book called Season of Life, written a couple of years ago, uh, that that talks through a lot of that and how sports can be used as a, a redemptive tool uh, to demonstrate uh, neat things in culture. Anyway, I digress. I just think ultimately what we need to do from a very early age is, is train our kids uh, in, in how to love other people well. And, and there's a million different ways to do that, but we can't, we can't mistake training our kids to love other people well with just loving our kids exclusively because they really will grow up 
thinking they're the epicenter of the universe at that point. And, and, and that's not in their best interest. That loving them exclusively isn't loving them. Uh, is, is ultimately, I think, what I'm getting at. It, it's showing them how to love God first, how to love other people second. You're certainly doing that in their lives as well, but it, it can't just be exclusively to them. So, This is probably an anticlimactic question. I actually wanted the fourth point that you were giving in your five points of why discipleship. I know you answered it. I just needed it for him. Oh, the f- whoa, Dyson. It's the voice of God. That was yes. so loud. The fourth point of why discipleship so often fails? Yes. Oh, we have one more. It's after No. No. Because, yeah, the fourth, the fourth point is that discipleship in Jesus must be discipleship for others. Okay, that's what I mean. So the, you could say that differently, that, that we've trained people to think that discipleship is just for me. And that until you have... So you're communicating in your teaching that whatever Jesus is doing in you is meant to then be ministered through you, then you're not, you're not teaching the complete picture of discipleship. Well, thank you, Brandon, and thank you, that's a, not, that's a great final question. Yeah. Thank you for making sure we cover that. We, uh, just before we close, we have a little tradition. It's already a tradition after uh, this is our fourth session. After 12 hours. After 12 hours, we have a tradition. And that is, uh, we are going to give away some good stuff. We, first of all, if you don't already have this, please pick this up. This is, tells us a little bit about the Bonhoeffer Project. If you go on our website, uh, BonhoefferProject.com, TheBonhoefferProject.com, uh, you can find out pretty much the same thing. But we have these in the back, and also cards that you can take. And then we have a number of people. We have so many great people associated with them. I feel kind of bad. We like have need a fleet of couches back here to uh, have everybody who has something worthwhile to say uh, among us, And uh, but uh, we're, that's just not possible. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we've been, I've been getting kind of stuck on these Bonhoeffer questions, but uh, we're going to ask you uh, some more questions about Bonhoeffer and the, uh, and then if you can answer it, then you get a book. And we uh, have uh, just a couple of uh, giveaway of each. Uh, the first one, conversion and discipleship. You can't have one without the other. Oh, you'll be the book babe. Oh, okay. Um, so the, the first question is, um, what... Uh, oh. What movie did uh, Bonhoeffer see in America that caused him to think about becoming a pacifist? It was a German movie. All Quiet on the Western Front. That's right. All Quiet on the Western Front. So who would you like to give the book to since you already have a book? There we go. Okay, another question, maybe a little easier. Um... That was a good guess. That was a right guess. Um, so uh, Bonhoeffer, when he was talking about uh, becoming a pacifist, what was the passage in Scripture or the section of Scripture that he was really committed to that, uh, that he talked about in, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship? Speak up. 
Now, did somebody say the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, you win. Okay, that's close enough. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, we have, then we have uh, copies of uh, the Christian leader. And uh, next question is, uh, what was the name of the church that Bonhoeffer uh, was a part of starting that broke away from the uh, German church during, uh, in 1934, uh, it was based on the Barman Declaration. So who, who knows that? It was, it was the name of a new denomination, a new group. Confessing. Who said that? A whole bunch of people. Okay. Okay, good. He got that one. Very good. And finally, uh, when uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, was arrested by the Gestapo, uh, he was sent to prison. Uh, how long did he spend in prison? How long? Yes, got it. He wins. So, congratulations, everyone. And we will hang around to talk if anybody would like to discuss or ask more questions. And we'll look forward to uh, seeing you after lunch in our final session. And then, of course, there is the pl plenary session this afternoon. I see Dr. Coleman is here, and so uh, introduce yourself to Dr. Robert Coleman. Uh, he's in the middle back there, uh, the distinguished-looking gentleman. And uh, go up and greet him if you've never met him. It would be a privilege to meet him. So see you later. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. This audio was adapted from the original presentation. Not all live interactions are included. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.